0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 11th, 2022. I am John Putthor. the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, So... uh, we're kind of dealing with the same stories we've been dealing with all week. We have, uh, we have Trump and the fallout not only from his uh, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, but his taking the fifth in the case regarding his taxes in New York. We have uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and a growing controversy over the empowerment of the IRS to collect hundreds of billions of dollars in new revenue to offset the cost of the climate change provisions in the bill, thus allowing it to be named the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, And not that we've been talking about it, but the simultaneous word that the uh, Iran nuclear deal uh, is back on the table uh, in a big way in negotiations, even as we have an indictment of an Iranian agent for the attempted or planning planning of the assassination of our old friend, commentary contributor and former national security advisor John Bolton, as well as news that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was also being targeted for assassination. So we have the Iran deal, which is like the thing that wouldn't die. We have the trump tax case in new york and we have the trump raid in florida and we have the inflation reduction act and of course uh christine's favorite which is that um joe biden was visited in the white house although apparently remotely because it was covid by um people whom people persisted calling historians who were not historians like
1: a few of them are historian. Uh, Sean Walens is a historian. He he right, gets to he call himself was, a historian. I don't think he
0: was in this meeting, right? Wasn't
1: he in the previous meeting? He was in another meeting. Yes, he's been having okay, lots so of the meetings. The meeting this week was
0: apparently to school and educate Biden in the threat to our democracy. And uh, Fareed Zakaria was one person. Again, think whatever you want to about Fareed. Not a historian. Uh there were a couple of other people in there who were not historians and there were then there were a couple of wackadoo historians sort of like generalists i don't think historians are any better than anybody else for some reason it's the white house that wants credit for bringing in historians or people who want to call themselves uh historians like my favorite presidential historian michael beschloss who seems neither to be presidential nor particularly a historian but whatever um so they apparently got together and said you know when fascism was on the rise in the 1930s uh father Coughlin was doing these broadcasts and colonel mccormick of the chicago tribune was publishing conservative editorials oh boy what a parallel to today wow fox news can you believe it uh so i don't actually remember fascism taking over the united states but whatever
1: I, I, I have to add that, that the, the the sort of ironic takeaway as reported from someone who had you know access to someone in this meeting, because it's all hush hush and off the records. Of course, they rushed to the Washington Post so that they can make sure that they that everyone knows they've been called into the Oval Office to talk to the president because they're that important. There's a great takeaway, which is that, oh, you know, they were flattering Biden's uh, ego about, oh, he's so fluid in the history and the understanding of the rise of fascism and the, the parallels to today. And he's just wrestling with whether he should be talking about all these sophisticated you know, goings on and and the rise of authoritarianism in general every day to remind people of the threat or as he has come to decide, he should just govern well, because that just shows the base, the, the best example of the alternative to authoritarianism. I'm like, okay, but he's not doing that either. So the, the the flattery that's going on and presidents do this. They love to bring in sort of, it gave a scholarly sheen to whatever they might be wanting to do in the rough and tumble world of politics. It's a typical thing to do, but it's the post reporting of it as if, you know, he's just, he's the sage who's drawing around him the greatest minds and they're informing him. They, they did this a lot with Obama. I didn't figure they'd try it with biden he's a very different character but here we are
0: my my dad i'm just going to tell a story about my my father in the early 1960s and john f kennedy who really invented the i'm going to bring in the brain trust of america to be my you know harvard historians and people who played you know who, who who ghost wrote his books and things working for him sucking up to him in that really repulsive and unseemly way um my father uh who was the then very young editor of commentary this would have been 1962 ish uh went to the white house with a bunch of people among them the film director robert rawson who had made all the king's men won oscars for that and then made the hustler and rawson was a friend of his and rawson was a very 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 left-wing guy black partially blacklisted had either he was a fellow traveler might conceivably have been a member of the communist party at some point i can't remember but very left-wing and very skeptical of kennedy uh and they are either in the oval office or going around a table or something like that and kennedy is being introduced to everybody and someone says and mr president this is the film director robert rawson And Kennedy says, just like this in this tone, well, I'm very pleased to meet you, Mr. Rawson. That was it. And for the rest of his life, you could not say a bad word about John F. Kennedy to Robert Rawson. Robert Rawson loved John F. Kennedy. Robert Rawson defended John F. Kennedy. Someone said, you know, Kennedy started the Vietnam War, Rawson would get mad, whatever it was, doesn't matter. Kennedy, won over Robert Rawson's heart simply by stressing the word you in a sentence. That is the power of the presidency even now.
2: Or just the power of flattery. I feel the exact same way about Michael Moore, who I hated until he said I was funny, at which point
0: I I said he's abiding affection for him forever. Yeah, but that's very good, Noah. But he said, you're funny. Here's what the president said to Robert Rawson. Nice to meet you. Didn't say, I loved all the King's men. He didn't say, how did you get that performance out of Jackie Gleason and the Hustler? He just said, pleased to meet you. That's all he needed to say. So the historians, like anybody else, are susceptible to this idea that, you know, you go into the corridors of power and are, you know, briefed by and get to brief the president on the preposterous parallels between the rise of fascism in the 1930s and today oh another historian michael mcfall again not a historian good guy very smart analyst of russian politics and you know a very knowledgeable former ambassador um anyway uh it's just an interesting moment because it's like in the middle of everything, you know, let's bring in let's bring in the eggheads. Let's w- try to win it's, over eggheads. Not like 95 percent of them aren't going to vote for him anyway.
1: See, I don't think I don't think it's trying to win them over at all. I think it's a deliberate PR strategy. The Biden administration has released is kind of given intellectual sheen to the kind of democracy in peril theme that I think they're going to they're, they're reigniting particularly given the events of the last week with trump this idea that not only are we concerned as politicians but even the experts are here briefing us about the danger that we are going to save all the rest all of you americans from so i think it's a the way that post story is written if anybody wants to go check it out strikes me as being it, it reads like a you know kind of style section uh flattering profile of a, of a movie star like the whole idea of this this he's smarter than you think look he's got all these experts who are who are telling him just exactly but he knows a lot already he's just you know sort of they, they called it socratic dialogue i mean come on <laughs> hmm.
3: i think uh i thought i thought it was the we neocons who always thought it was 1930 I in 1930s rather right yeah
0: right but the, you're in the wrong part of the 1930s they think it's the early 1930s we think it's 1936 and onward hmm. you know they're like reichstag fire you know hooverville's and Father coughlin that's really like the fight against the National Recovery Act or something like that. We start with Munich. That's, that's our Donzig. They're Munich. not going to out neocon con yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this is a, this is an excellent point. Um, I look, eh, he can meet with whoever he wants to. I would be perfectly happy if the president had an hour every day in which he met with smart people to be told smart things that would be that would be fine with me whatever doesn't matter it's just part and parcel of this reclamation project and I but I think there is a larger point, political point to be made about the stress on to the threat to our democracy which is very important for democratic and liberal cohesion in my view which is this there is a political aspect to the argument that the Republican party is, a, is unique in, in the person of Trump or the rise of the Trumpians who are taking over the party and all that. And that there is an important element that I think people you know genuinely believe, who believe this, but is also very convenient for the consultant class and everybody who needs to bring people out, which is that it doesn't now matter what Republican is running for office. It doesn't matter if you don't like Biden. And you know what? The Republicans nominate the risen Christ to be their nominee in 2024. You have to vote for Biden because if your candidate is the risen Christ, he's still part of this party that is a threat to democracy. And essentially, it's the sort of Lincoln Project bulwark view now, which is, you have to vote against every republican at every level in every place you have to stop the republican party anyone with an r after their name because in aggregate the republican party is the gravest threat to democracy since the civil war and it must be stopped and anybody who isn't part of that crew you know anybody who is who like affirmatively opposes it or whatever it doesn't matter they're still. They still have this R after their name and therefore are just a front for the bad guys. And I have to say again, as a naked raw political message, it's not bad to keep your troops on edge and to say, drag yourself over glass to vote. Add to that, not only the threat to democracy, but of course the threat to reproductive rights and the threat to the climate. And the threat, you know, that you're going to be shot in the head by somebody with a gun. And you have a a pretty potent mix, again, to deal with the fact that in general, people like this uh, would in these moments tend to be pretty unenthusiastic, depressed and unmotivated voters, even though their intent would be should they get to the polls to vote the way Democrats would want them
2: to vote yeah but it's a risk sorry
3: well but uh, I agree I mean as, as a as a political message it's not bad um as a sort of mode of analysis and recommendation and that that sort of s- spread out across the country and broadcast constantly I think it's um ruinous because yeah look there's no surprise to anyone listening to 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 us that we see a whole host of of serious problems on the right and there's no problem and there's no there's no crime in saying that and and pointing out the worst of them and the dangers of them but if you do that without drawing any attention to the insanity going on on the left um, then there is no incentive to for course correction on the left and it all keeps uh, spiraling out of control
2: yeah it's a risky long-term proposition psychologically because if you you committed to this idea that the republican party is all authoritarians and then they win but they don't win as a result of that they win despite that all the conditions favoring republicans now environmental conditions favoring now win out and voters either compartmentalize their hostility towards or fear of republicans uh anti-democratic illiberal impulses or just simply um you know dismiss them outright then you've You'll convince yourself that there's no hope for the country. Fifty percent of the right. country is okay with authoritarianism. What's the point? Just withdraw.
0: No. Um, I think they're there already. I think the people for whom I'm the people I'm describing here, who would be core democratic voters, are pretty much there already. We can we have we need to disaggregate this audience of you know political listeners. Let's say. Okay, you have the core Republican audience, which thinks in various, you know, in in, in a range of things, right? Biden's an idiot. Biden is senile. Democrats are radical. They want to uh, tax you. They want to regulate you. They want to audit you. They want to um, uh, make it impossible for you to drive a car to get energy that you need and they wanna indoctrinate your children uh, in you know, new sexual mores and gender ideas and things like that. And they stole the election and they control everything and they're brainwashing you through the media. Then you have Democrats who have, Repub- then you have sort of the let, which has Republicans are monsters. They've empowered an authoritarian. They wanna take away your rights. They wanna take away your abortions. They want to turn your money over to the top 0.1%. They want to, they want to despoil the environment. They want to get us into war and uh, I don't know, whatever other thing and destroy the country through their authoritarian seizure of power. Then you have the people in the middle and they're not, None of these messages, the apocalyptic nature of the message isn't really reaching them. They're more like, God, my grocery bills are really high now. On the other hand, it's pretty easy to get a job, but my but I'm not I'm not going to make enough new money from this new job to offset the cost of living increases here. And boy, these politicians make me sick, all of them, with the way they yammer and yell and this and that, right? So Um in each case, if if the Democrats prevail in 2022, in some fashion and in 2024, the Republican part of this conversation will say America's over. And the same is true of the Democratic part of this conversation, which will say that America is over. And then you got people in the middle who are like, How how are we gonna can I get my can can gas, can we figure out how to get gas back to three dollars a gallon? Like, I have to get my kids to school. I have to pay my bills. You know, I'd like to go on vacation.
1: But see, this is this speaks to the issue of how our government doesn't govern well anymore on either side of the aisle. Right. And they're not actually good at solving these practical problems. They want to have big, abstract, ideologically driven debates on both sides about what they claim or big ideas. Look, it would have been much better if before Biden disappeared to some home that we don't know who owns it in South Carolina for. We don't know how long because the White House isn't releasing how long his vacation is going to be or when he's going to return or any or anything about a schedule that which seems kind of weird and would never have flown in a Trump era. But we do know that he'd be better off sitting around with economists and actual practical people who can solve practical problems instead of having Socratic dialogue with with intellectuals like the, this would be something that the American people might benefit from, but they don't. The government governance now requires compromise of a type that's not available to the to the kind of entrenched wings on both sides of the party. So they don't get anything done. And that's what really angers the people in the middle, because they expect the government to work for them. It's supposed to work for them.
3: Yeah. I mean, by the way, just just to, to keep going, John, with your mm-hmm. the conversation on the left and the right and, and the middle and have the middle re- how everyone would would view the the election uh, the next election um the people in the middle also they look at the 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 same extremes on the left and right as the as the end, as the as the right looks on the left and the left looks on the right they look at, at both sides and say yeah everything may be done too but i need gas i need food
0: Maybe they do. I don't know. I mean, let's put it this way. So you have, let's take people in the middle. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to like lionize them. These are people that we would often call low information voters at some, a lot of them are not, or they don't pay attention. They should really pay attention. Every time they really start to pay attention, things can change really fast. That's part of the parents revolt issue that, you know, Christine wrote about last September. We have a big piece coming up on our September issue by Robert Pondicio on just how serious politically this uh revivification of parental involvement in schooling and the war against them is right so there are things that can really awaken a sleeping giant but mostly they're just not paying much attention and then things are happening to them that they could prevent if they were more involved but i don't know that they say everything is terrible either way i think sometimes they probably listen to all this and say what are you what are you people talking about like what 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 madness is this? Like you're acting like we're we're in a civil war, like we're not in a civil war. what do you you know? my life is no different. I'm not madder at my neighbors than I was four years ago. I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know how many people those are, but remember, there are more independent voters now than there are Democrats or Republicans, I believe. I'm not quite sure, but I think either the numbers are now pretty close to being like 30, 27, 35 or 32, 29, 32 Dem, 29 R, and then the rest like aren't affiliated. But I mean, those non-affiliated people are maybe non affiliated, not only because they're low information, but because the parties are not describing a world that they recognize.
3: But but that they alone, recognize- that alone would, would sort of inform a, a kind of, they, 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 that would make them so that they couldn't possibly be enthused about the state of the country and our politics, right? I mean, if they're if they're if they're if just they're about seeing the two this. parties,
2: right. though. I mean, there's a distinction between independence and true independence. There are more independents now than ever. I think there are fewer true independents, meaning that they don't lean in one direction right. or another. Right. Yeah. So three out of four independents, well, according to this five thirty-eight right. piece I'm writing reading right now, says roughly, you know, seventy-five uh, percent of those who identify as independent lean consistently towards yeah, one. Party they're the
0: fellow other. travelers. They, they, they're either sort of, they're either liberals or conservatives basically. And then they vote.
2: You just don't sort of like the country. label. Right. Or the but affiliation.
0: I'm not just talking about voters here. I'm not just talking about electorates here. I'm talking about sort of the country as a whole. And it is a very, we're in a, the country is in a very, very weird condition in this sense. I think we have fairly apocalyptic worries about the future, right? We do, you know, we don't, we're worried about China. We're worried about, you know, uh, the kind of uh, critical race theory, transgenderist ideology stuff, The sort of the the effort to sort of portray the world as it is in, in order to advance uh, an agenda that we are worried will be very harmful to people and all of that. Others who have different political views have different things that they are alarmed by. But on the other hand, we're not at war, right? We have bad inflation, but we have, you know, very serious high unemployment. We have wage growth. We are in better shape than Europe, economically and in terms of inflation. We are not an authoritarian or totalitarian country like the ones that are supposedly growing and threatening us you know it's a pretty nice place to live we have a constitution maybe we're all hysterical and crazy and the people who don't want to join our cause are looking at us and saying you are describing a day-to-day existence that i do not recognize they don't live in new york so they they don't see you know the kind of the the menace and grime and stuff that has grown over the last five years in the subways and on the streets that have, you know, made Abe and me depressed, for example, or the kind of stuff that's going on in D.C. that makes Christine depressed. So I I don't know. I mean, I just think it's an interesting thing. Like we, we push buttons and our buttons are pushed. And then there's a whole realm of Americans who don't even have these buttons. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not affected, like they're not, they're coming for them too. We all think, no matter where you are on the political side, like I think we're trying to protect their ordinary life against the people who want government and and sort of like it's kind of mass think group think to dominate everybody. So in that sense, I feel like I'm protecting the people that I'm talking about here in a way that liberals or leftists would say they want to guide them into a better place into a you know into a more progressive place or whatever (laughs) but like i say this is not we have to pull back a little and say you know it isn't the 1970s yet you know the 1970s we lost the vietnam war you know we had 50% of our military in in random drug testing, testing positive for drug use while on active duty. We had this insane crime surge going that was making not only cities, but almost everywhere unsafe. Petty larcenies, burglaries, muggings, stuff that wasn't just like, you know, Death Wish Upper West Side New York streetscape stuff we're not there, that's not the country that we live in now. And we maybe should remember that a little bit that where our apocalypse is all about it's sort of betting on the come. It's like, if we don't stop some of the stuff in the butt, you know, who knows what it'll be like in 2031, but there are people who don't think that way. I mean, four or five years ago, one of the major topics on the right was, we're gonna have to do something to get our fiscal house in order in the because the entitlements are going to go bankrupt. They're still going to go bankrupt. (laughs) You know, we haven't even, we haven't even continued to talk about that, but why can't you get that to become a major political issue? Because people don't live in the future. You know, if you say to somebody who has like a limited amount of money, look, you really better replace your roof this year. Because you got five more years of roof, maybe, but it could be three. Do it now, get it over with. But you're like, I don't want to spend that money on the roof because I need a new boiler, and that's new. You know, it's like, you know, telling people they need to fix the entitlement program because in 12 years it's going to go bankrupt is like saying, well, I don't know, maybe we'll all be living on the moon. I'm not, I'm not going to do that now. I have to, I have, I don't want to spend the money on that. But that's a rational reading of how to do, you know, then it's, oh, it's terrible. Americans don't think of the long term and we're so irresponsible and the government's so irresponsible. But is it really? I don't know if we get if nuclear fusion were invented tomorrow, a lot of problems would go away. You can't bet on nuclear fusion being invented tomorrow, but it could happen, you know. We got fracking and the entire world's, you know, the entire dominant position of an entire air region in the world that was controlling a lot of geopolitics for 50 years evaporated in five years because we started doing this thing in 2007 that we hadn't done before. So maybe the rational view is a more, or the like, don't go so crazy, deal with the problems as they happen. I don't know. What do you? Now I'm just
1: well but the but the fracking is a good example. A lot of the examples that we're giving here that that would uh, lead us away from despair are examples of private industry or or entrepreneurship outside of government doing what it does best and what our country has for a very long time been known to do best it's what draws a talent from other countries to our shores it what it's it's what you know continues to we t- continue to export those good techniques uh, to the rest of the world. I think what's the challenge for the sort of moderate uh, voter, uh, moderate of either stripe, is that they look at the government now and it just looks like tit for tat, right? So the Democrats are in power. They're going to shove down your throats all the stuff that most people don't want because they have the power. Well, then they'll lose. The Republicans will come in. They'll try to undo everything and do their own stuff. And it's this back and forth, the seesaw and the long-term thinking. There's no space for it there because it's too much tit for tat. It's too much. Well, we've got to dismantle all this bad stuff and do our own stuff. And then the new group comes in. That's why I think most people like a divided government. They don't like it when one party has too much power. And right now we're in a new situation where the Democrats not only have political power in several branches, but also have a vast amount of cultural power. And that is much more difficult to undo. So a lot of those moderate voters have just kind of shrugged and hold up their hands and say, we don't like either party. And that's what polling data about parties, uh, people's feelings about both political parties. It is quite pessimistic now in a way that it wasn't even 10, 20 years ago.
0: Now, let me ask you this. So when I was growing up, <clears throat> the Democrats from 1954 to 1994 controlled the House of Representatives. Uninterruptedly, 40 years of control of this one body. Since 1994, let's count. I think there have been three or four handovers of power, maybe more, maybe five, I don't know. I, I mean, it, you know, it was 94 was one handover, uh, 2006, was another handover 2010 was another handover 2016 was another handover and then 2018 was so five turnovers in 28 years after 40 years of no turnover and then the senate which was also much more stably democratic but then since 1980 Senate went Republican in 80, went Democratic in 86, went Republican in 94, went Democratic in the middle of 2001, went Republican in 2002, went Democratic in 2006, went Republican in 2014, and went Democratic in 2020. So that's eight turnovers since 1980 wouldn't you think that increasing instability and the fact that these these powers bounce back and forth would have led to more mutual assured destruction treaties it turns out it's the opposite like the parties come in and they're like let's do everything do do investigations everything until we lose our power right and then they keep talking about it's like the democrats talking about you know, um, expanding the size of the Supreme court and ending the filibuster and doing this and doing that as though they're going to hold on to power forever.
2: Yeah. Part of the problem with this whole cycle that you described starting in the very end of the 20th century is that a lot of these are wave years. 94 was a wave. 10 was a wave. 14 was a wave. 16 and 20 weren't, but 18 was so, and and waves were pretty uncommon in the post-war period. Uh, you know, with the exception, I guess, of 1948, 46, 46 46, rather. Thank you. And, you know, a handful, but uh, they, they weren't common. It was, you know,
0: 74. I mean, mean, they weren't as common,
2: right. But now they're very common. So you can anticipate a major reaction just about every other cycle at this point. So, yeah, why would you handcuff yourself with some sort of a cord With the other side, when you're most likely to benefit from their inevitable overreach,
0: but then you're but but you benefit, but you don't benefit very much. I mean, so the Democrats are more competent than the Republicans in this sense, which is that whatever mistakes Biden made, and he made many, and he screwed up the Build Back Better bill by tying it to infrastructure and doing all kinds of stuff. In 20, but he got he's gotten stuff done, right? He got the American Rescue Plan, he got infrastructure, he's now gotten this chips bill, and he's gotten the uh, climate change inflation reduction act bill. Because he had a house in the Senate and the presidency. Trump was incredibly incompetent, right? He also had a house, a Senate, and the presidency, and he really kept getting in his own way, screwing up. You know, border deals and uh the paying paying for the wall and and the uh you know, seven or eight different things that he, because of his own fecklessness and lack of understanding, did not let go through and basically drove Paul Ryan out of office because he was like, I can't work with this lunatic. Like, we keep having perfectly rational plans. We should be able to get through the house. And he just comes in and he's like. You know, it's like Keystone, he's tripping me. What's he tripping me for? I'm on his side, right? So um, you have this weird thing where you can sort of get a lot done fast, but it's just very unstable. Then it can all be taken away. Comes, it goes, it goes, it comes. I don't know. I just think like, But you you
2: can secure in that short window of time that you have some legislative victories. And we've pretty firmly established now over the course of the last 20 years that those legislative victories are sticky, have a fair amount of permanence. You can chew around the edges of them, but if you can impose, if you can create a new entitlement... Sure, you can peel off the individual mandate after 15 years of lobbying about it, but that's all you're going to get. You can reform the tax code, but you're most likely not going to unreform the tax code. Like you can get a lot done in that very small window of time.
0: You know, Steve Bannon, after Trump got elected, gave that famous interview that that set the clock ticking on his firing, where he said. We're going to upend all of Washington because we're going to come at the Democrats and we're going to take their issues away and make them vote for things that they want that we're going to push for. And specifically, he mentioned infrastructure. Right? I have I hold no brief for Steve Bannon, whom I think is a clown and a fool and a boob and a crook and a bad person. And I don't like him, and I don't like him to say, but he was right. Like counterpositive, counterfactual. Trump runs his, um, what would you call it? The interregnum or you know the period, whatever, whatever, transition. And he says, I want Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and Paul Ryan to all come to Trump Tower and we're gonna sit down and we're gonna come up with a deal on infrastructure. Now, obviously it would have been Gall and Wormwood to Pelosi and to Schumer, uh, but he would have said, look, what do you want, right? Didn't they have that deal about guns? They had that whole meeting at the White House about guns where Trump said, what do you want? I want to go with you. And then he got scared after they sort of had an agreement at the table. But if he'd really done that, uh, and this notion that he was coming from outside politics and he wasn't going to play by the rules and he wasn't going to do this, the whole history of the last six years would have been wildly different.
1: Well, that was the weird irony, right, for all of his bombast and all of his I'm going to blow up the system when it legislatively he was all hat, no cattle. I mean, there was just no way he followed through. And, he, and part of it is that he just simply, A, he doesn't understand how the process works as an outsider, and B, he didn't care. He actually didn't care as long as he was able to go out there and say let's build a wall over and over again to adoring fans that was that was what the feedback he wanted and it is what drove people like paul ryan good people in government who who were trying to actually get things done and speaking of reforming entitlements that was paul ryan's whole thing right for years and years It just there was utter frustration that that was the leader of the party, Um, but he was he was a leader that so you could not get those things done. The difference with Biden is that he's getting things done now. But as I think Abe and Noah have pointed out uh, this week a few times, he it's almost in spite of him being the president, not because of.
3: Also, you know, regarding the the Bannon, the Bannon blueprint for for, you know, doing things that Democrats uh, would like. Um, Trump created his own opposition to that. Um, Part of his movement was about detesting Republicans who would work across the aisle. Right. Who 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 wouldn't just uh, blast through everything. Yeah. So, you know, he he had once again gotten gotten his own way there.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, like I say, it was sort of a moment of of interesting political clarity that I don't think he ever had before ever achieved again. But this notion that if you took the Trump victory as something wildly discontinuous and suggesting uh, a general public feeling, particularly in the Republican Party, that how things were done, including the way things were done, you know, with Ted Cruz shutting the government down, we you know whatever whatever stunts Republicans had been pulling since 2010 and their victory in 2010 2014 that this was not the way to go, and that some other way was needed because the needs of the American people were not being met by by Washington. Um, yeah, and then Trump couldn't pull it off because you need to kind of like maintain a kind of laser like focus on. Uh, not only the ideas that can change that can shift all of these alliances and screw up the current sclerotic or you know or like revivify the current sclerotic system but also the techniques by which you're going to get there and it requires calm foresight you know not letting your emotions govern you thinking more galaxy brain like about who'll take what and what'll take who as opposed to I will win, you will lose, I will dominate you, you will bow, you will bend the knee to me and all of that. And it didn't happen. It doesn't really, I'm just saying, I, I, I think that you would look at the instability of the political system. And this is where I started with this question to Noah. You would look at the instability is maybe not the right word, the fluidity of the political system really over the last 30 some odd years. And say it's interesting, it's a political science lesson that the instability doesn't cause the people who are in the middle of it to try to sue for peace or find a kind of pathway to not just being whipsawed. It's like they want to sail into choppy, into you know, into icebergs, as opposed to charting a course together. Where they can go relatively smooth across the North Atlantic, uh, and maybe you give up some of your m- most desired things, but you yourself have a better time, and you kind of like have more. I, I, that's what I would. That's what I would assume. Like thinking about this novelistically, but it's a lesson that that's not the way it worked, and it's really not the way it works. And obviously, Republicans come in in November. Depending on whether they win the Senate, or they certainly win the House, and um, you know they are going to go at the Democratic Party's jugular. You know, they're not going to say, "Let's put, let's let let's try to rack up some victories here,"
2: or you know, but that's like, how they they mess up too, because they're not going to win the House or the Senate, perhaps, <laughs> on the back of the idea that well, at least somebody finally, some committee is going to investigate Hunter Biden. Nobody gives a shit about Hunter Biden in the independent universe of voters. They care about pocketbook issues. They care about putting a check on on the Biden administration legislatively, because as we know now from this wonderful YouGov poll, uh, that uh, all of 12% of voters think the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce inflation. Um, That's the sort of thing that's a killer. It's an absolute killer. They have stepped on their own toes a lot by just ignoring the fundamentals of this year and, frankly, of this administration. But Republicans come in and they execute culture war stuff and they appeal to the Twitter base and then they look like they're taking their eye off the ball. There's not much that a Republican House can do about any of this stuff, save nothing. But that used to be a Republican value. Doing nothing and doing nothing well. That was the sort of thing that, and that's when Christine made the very valuable point that we're running on all cylinders when this country has divided government, when we have legislative gridlock. Uh, That's, it drives partisans absolutely nuts and it drives the press absolutely nuts. But that sort of sustainable stasis isn't necessarily bad for the American political psyche
0: can i can I talk about what Republicans might do that not only would be of value but would would be um very hard to assail from a democratic perspective, though they would try that isn't investigating Hunter Biden, which by the way, I actually, again, speaking simply politically and cynically, I think is a, is 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 a necessary act politically because of what happened in October twenty twenty and the fact that the entire liberal to left to political wing of of in the United States actively worked to suppress a news story that would not, I don't would not have knocked Joe Biden out of the presidency, by the way. But their terror that it would, defaming the New York Post, saying that this was Russian disinformation, you know, shutting people down on on social media, all of that, while it is clearly true, clearly the case that Hunter Biden was up to some pretty untoward things and that there are open questions about the level of his father's involvement in some of those untoward things, they have to do some investigating of it. They can't like unilaterally disarm after what happened with Trump. That, that's like po- politics 101. But forget that, because I don't think that will have legs except with the people who would already you know want it we talked about this months ago, but it's still there. How much money did we spend on COVID? $2 trillion, $4 trillion? Where did it go? There needs to be a reconcile, not a truth and reconciliation commitment. There needs to be like, there was both in the Civil War and in World War II, Truman ran one in World War II, Benjamin Raid ran one during the Civil War about, was there profiteering mismanagement, misuse of government funds In this unprecedented amount of money being thrown at a problem, that we passed these bills, two different bills, colossal amounts of money. Where did it go? And not only where did it go, but how was it allocated? And was the allocation of that money done in a way that was used to reward friends and punish enemies? Or to you know, get political advantage or stuff like that, that is that is what government oversight is about. And we don't hear much talk of this. But you know, if the Republicans won the Senate, I mean, I, a couple of friends of mine who are senators, I've said, this is what you should try to you should try to go for us you should chair a special, you know, committee to investigate covid era government spending and get 20 people on and do it as caesar's wife as possible because nobody's gonna like you know everyone's ox is gonna be gored probably but we it's something a we need to know and b you know i don't know i just feel like uh, if we're going to look backward, that's where we need to look. Are we really going to just let this all go? That we spent four trillion dollars and we don't know where them all the money went for education, for example. Were those schools ventilated properly? Did that money get spent on on creating new HVAC systems in schools across the country? You know, I mean stuff like that. Like, and Democrats have the right to then also, if you if this is your ox, like say. How did, uh, you know, how did the vaccine operation go? Like, where did that money go? How much has Pfizer made? How much has Johnson & Johnson made? That's money presumably people would not, you know, object to because the vaccinations were popular, despite the fact that we now think they weren't, but obviously 70% of the country got vaccinated. So it was popular, but, like, was that money well spent? We should, like, have a report on it. Um. There's a
2: the COVID thing is is actually quite interesting because you were talking earlier about the parents' revolt, and there are um, inklings, little green shoots, of a sentiment among what we disparagingly perhaps call low-information voters, but unaligned voters, low-engagement voters, maybe not even midterm voters, but certainly general election voters, um, who are re-engaging on in opposition to mandates across the board. Now, some of that manifests in ways that I think are kind of unhealthy, like mandates against MMR vaccines, for example, in schools, but a generally libertarian, classically liberal libertarian uh, approach to the idea of mandatory activities um, being imposed on you by state, local, and federal governments. Uh, That's the sort of thing that a party that had any any vestiges of libertarian sentiment left in it could capitalize on, but we don't have any of those anymore, at least not, not not at the forefront of the Republican Party in particular, that it has sacrificed that sort of emphasis on individual liberty above all as one of its primary value propositions. If that's your value, and people do vote values, they vote policy outcomes, they vote, but they want to see people who share their general worldview representing them in government as hard as that is to define but if your worldview includes sort of a don't tread on me sentiment i don't know who is interested in capitalizing on that anymore
0: i don't know you know there was a debate last night in one of these new districts in new york state you know new york state had to redraw its map a second time because of this outrageous gerrymander that had been Thrown it, and so they created these two. So in one of those districts, Jerry Nadler and Carol Maloney, two veteran members of Congress from Manhattan, are now facing off against each other. We don't know how that's going to come out. The only poll I've seen has Nadler ahead, but there is this entirely new district uh, in you know in sort of in 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 around New York City, uh, NY ten, and there was a debate last night. Uh, This is the district in which uh, that guy, Goldman, who Dan Goldman, who was one of the impeachment lawyers uh, is running as well as Mondaire Jones, who was a first term congressman whose district was he was redistricted out of his district and the ancient legendary Elizabeth Holtzman who served on the Nixon impeachment committee in the House and lost a Senate bid in 1980. Uh, to al damato and then vanished pretty much and she's like 275 years old and is running for the house and then you know there's like a deaf person there's a latina latinx person and there's somebody else okay so latinx or however you pronounce it so there are like six candidates in this race and there's sort of like a lightning round and at some point the lightning round errol lewis who was writing lightning round said do you favor covid mandates On public transport, planes, and in schools. And they all said yes. Well, Goldman said he would follow the science, but all five of the six of them said there should be COVID mandates in schools when school starts in September, as well as on buses, trains, and planes. Now, I'm struck by this because, so these are all, this is like a race on the left, like, you know, the you know this is just sort of like you know like marjorie taylor green's district except in except in left-wing circles right i mean this is they're they're operating in la-la land anyway but um they want kids to wear masks in schools in
1: 2022 it's that's, that's still out there no, I, I mean, I, it's happening at all the blue, bluest of the blue cities, mine included Washington, D.C., D.C. charter schools. There's several that still have that are issuing already telling parents mass right. mandates are in effect in the fall. They're already saying that they have the DCPS has not said that, but no, this is going to come all back in the fall, right. all right. back.
0: And if you are uh, smart, and this is where Noah, you're right, you this is where. You want those voters to turn from low information voters into midterm voters? I mean, maybe none of them is really going to be in this area. (laughs) You know, like they're not they're not in the right.
2: Oh, but there will be a wild enthusiasm gap. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but the the enthusiasm for an anti-mandate proposition versus a mandate proposition, I don't think they're equivalent.
0: I don't think they're equivalent. I don't think you would drag yourself
2: over glass to vote for a candidate who's going to mask up your kid in school. Whereas yeah, the there's a lot of liberal anger about true. that now too.
0: Yeah. Right. So I, but I'm just saying like, you can see all of this low hanging fruit um, that isn't even ideological, even though you you have, I think, framed it properly, which is that we have a liberty problem. We have a problem that we learned. <clears throat> we learned that post, that democratic liberals and leftists now are increasingly uninterested in liberty and civil rights, right? They don't, they 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 are not interested in free speech. They don't like free the free speech doctrine because they think it is empowering of, you know, noxious, hurtful, harmful language. They don't like liberty arguments about mandates and things like that because they think that people are stupid and need to be told what to do by health authorities. And they don't let, and so there is a real thing here that's happened that I we did. I don't think we really knew. All right, we're going around in circles, so I think we'll just end here. Talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.